Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. The North African campaign has come to its conclusion. There's some mopping up to do, but the tension is turning very slowly now towards the war in Western Europe. This is the week the British 1st Division takes the small Italian island of Pantelleria, 60 kilometres east of the Tunisian coastline and about 100 kilometres to the southwest of Sicily. Just to the south of that is Lampedusa, an even smaller island and, strangely, the only Axis location that ever managed to surrender itself to a single RAF pilot. I'll explain. Sergeant Sidney Cohen was returning from a flight over Malta looking for survivors of a German aircraft that had been shot down in the Med. Along with his navigator, Peter Tate, and his gunner, Les Wright, they found the pilot, dropped some emergency ration packs, radioed in their location, and were on their way home when the fairy swordfish developed instrument problems. Landing on the nearest landmass they could find, Lampedusa, They were then rather surprised to be confronted with an Italian garrison of 4,300 men, all asking the British airmen to accept their surrender. Remarkable. Let's stay on the west coast of Italy, but head over to the mainland. From the Axis perspective, things are relatively quiet. We'll rejoin Colonel Dr Wilhelm Maus, the new Chief Medical Officer for 14 Panzer Corps, as he's making arrangements for his troops' medical welfare on Sardinia. He's also taking stock of a new location, a commune at the southern end of the Liri Valley, in the province of Frosinone. We find Dr. Mouse situated near the small town of Monte Cassino, and from his diary entries, it looks as though he's been snapping a few photos of the scenery while he's had time. They're black and white, but we'll try to add them to our Twitter feed. Here's Mouse. 5th June 1943. Every day has special priorities. Yesterday, we had the pleasure of General Hoop as a guest. I had agreed we'd go to Lake Alban and I'd showed him the Via Appia Antica. In doing so, I met Generalfeldmarschall Kesserink. Abbas Lutwold was with him, the fighter pilot. 
I don't think he's even 30 years old, but he does make a very positive impression. The view now is that the English will not try any serious landings in Italy, but they have a focus on the Balkans. They're moving their forces more to the east. That is their strategy. There is unrest in the Balkans, so they can count on the support of the population. A successful English landing will bring them closer to the Russian front and the capture of the oil fields would give us Germans the upper hand. How Turkey will act in the end is very unclear. Ultimately, Churchill will certainly not let it come down to a small act of violence. 6th June 1943 I have to say it once again. There is a huge contradiction between the mud of Russia and this current paradise. If anyone had told me this would be our destiny, I simply would not have believed it. But still, the battles in Russia are going on. People are still starving and suffering in the same way. While here, here, it is as if there is no war. 8th June 1943, Rome. A tour today. Curtius told us every stone on the forum is drenched with blood. Emperor Galba has killed here. The first of the Gracchus brothers was murdered here. Here there was a stake where Caesar's corpse was burned and where Antonius read his flaming speech. A place of history. There are many parallels between then and now. History is a formidable lesson for politics. May we all learn from it. 10th June 1943. What were we told about Casino? Terrible. That is the word. We were told that hell would be Eden compared to Casino. And that the people would leave in panic when they knew the Germans were coming. But now I am here. I find a most enchanting city. It climbs out of the valley onto the edge of the mountain. On top is the famous monastery of Monte Casino and a castle ruin. One romantic group relieves the other. Section 1B is in a large school building in the piazza. On our left is a church from the early Christian area and in front of us, Monte Cassino. On the right, the cliff castle with remnants on the old wall leading up through the pebbles in the cliffs. I have delightful rooms. I live in a nice little villa in pleasantly furnished, friendly room with a balcony. But the rooms are full of warlike inscriptions. Words from Mussolini. Gentorio and Dante has been pasted on the wall. Mussolini is in every room, that is clear. And in my office, the Pope is also looking down seriously at everything I do. So, back to North Africa. The 56th Heavy Regiment is no longer in the thick of it and are not currently scheduled to take part in the invasion of Sicily. And that's good news for Jack Ward and the boys. And so in the meantime, the unit's days are occupied with two things. Training and much-needed rest and recuperation. 14th of June. Our time flies. I've been very, very busy of late. Training, training and more training. Managed to get three days off last week and went to Ain Taya. Took about seven hours. Train ride from Setif to Ruba. But worth it. I felt better for the change. I've heard that the King is in North Africa. I wonder what for. Something in the wind, I should think. Maybe something to do with Italy. Receiving air letters okay, but of course the sea mail's delivered only once a month. We're expecting ours next week. Had a bad rainstorm last night. Ran through our tent lines in large waves and washed all the chaps out, but at the time of writing, the sun is just grand. 
have just started a rest by the sea. Three days only. Not much good, but makes a change. I've just started a rest by the sea. Three days only. Not much good, but makes a change. Received an airmail from Midge yesterday. Looks as if she's improving. Wondered if we would be with them this Christmas. I've been promised a flight in a flying fortress. I wonder if it'll come off. Hope so. Received the snaps from Captain Lucy today. Very small, but clear. Gosh, who wouldn't like a flight in a flying fortress, eh? Well, perhaps not in wartime. The 8th Air Force is operating by day alongside the RAF Spomber Command, who are flying by night. The 8th is still in its formative stage, and has been held back because many of its bombers were transferred to North Africa. Still, for the Luftwaffe fighter pilots trying to defend against them, it seems as though there are already too many for comfort. Day and night, American and British bombers operating over Nazi-occupied Northwest Europe, and this means 22-year-old Lieutenant Heinz Knocker is constantly on alert, taking off to meet the incoming heavy bombers in his ME-109. A fearsome aircraft, the ME-109. The 109 was the most prolific warplane built during this period, and actually became the most built fighter plane ever in the world. You sometimes see it listed as a BF-109, after Bayerische Flugzeugwerke AG, but the company changed its name to Messerschmitt after its chief designer, Willy Messerschmitt, in July 1938, making BF redundant and ME becoming the prefix instead. But, believe it or not, when the 109 made its test flight in May 1935, Relations between Britain and Germany were pretty good, which meant early models were actually powered by a British engine, the Rolls-Royce Kestrel. It was a fine fighter aircraft. The Emil, Friedrich and latest Gustav models were fast, highly manoeuvrable and packed a big punch too. But with their big torque, narrow undercarriage and very high wing loading, it means the wings are quite small, meant it could be a bit of a beast in which to take off and land. So, fine once you were a highly experienced pilot, but not so good for those fresh out of flying training. Its Daimler-Benz engine was fabulous, and in skilled hands the 109 could even outturn a Spitfire, so it had many plus points. However, for it to really prove its worth, it did help if the cannons and guns worked properly, something Heinz Knocker was discovering to his chagrin. June 11th, 1943. The Yank does not come over again until this evening. Twice we take off to intercept... Only on the second mission, when the formation is far out the sea heading for home, does my chance to fire come. One of the fortresses finally goes down after my fourth run at it. June 13th, 1943. The flight carries out a formation attack on a batch consisting of some 120 heavy bombers. There's a fortress beautifully lined up in my sights. I press both firing buttons and nothing happens. I check my magazine loader and safety catch. Press the buttons again and still nothing happens. Seething with rage, I spiral down in the cloud bank below. Today is the 13th. Out to the Middle East next. But just before we check in with Corporal Harry Wilson, our cipher clerk attached to three corps at headquarters Palestine in Syria, it's worth briefly mentioning what's going on there. This part of the Middle East had been in French hands at the start of the war, then became Vichy French after the armistice in June 1940, before being wrested back into British and Allied hands, with the help of the Free French in July 1941. Now it's an important headquarters, ensuring all is quiet and peaceful in the Arab world, and yet another training base for the Duke forces, such as Three Corps, 
part of British 10th Army. Yes, it wasn't just 8th Army and 1st Army out in the Mediterranean and Middle East at that time. 10th Army's job was to keep the peace throughout the region, and that included Iraq and Iran too. And so to Harry, one of the cipher clerks helping to make sure that admin runs smoothly, whether the section is supporting an advance in a specific direction or, as we found out this week, it's embedded in an exercise or a scheme in anticipation of what's to come. Sunday 6th to, well no, I'm writing this a couple of days later. The journey was quite something. Teal desert, real desolation, sand, rocks and stones stretching to the horizon and, except for yellow hornets and the vultures above, there was no other life at all besides our own. However, I have picked up information about the coming scheme. An Indian division is to invade from the sea and an Indian brigade, the 19th I think, will be defended. Wire fences are being constructed and partially charged mines laid along the beaches. Live ammunition is to be used and genuine casualties are to be expected. Captain Cousin, CO of 19 Indian Infantry Brigade Signals, explained the outline of the defence scheme. There were to be three zones of defence, X, Y and Z, one or two cipher operators in each. There would be two also in the control room, the nerve centre for both invading and defending forces. He pointed out the locations on the chart. You'll probably have no cipher work to do, he said. It all depends on the phone lines. If they remain intact, you won't be needed. If they don't, we'll send messages by jeep. And if there aren't any jeeps, we'll send them by HD using codex. There won't be any cipher needed unless there's an emergency. Wednesday 9th. Nothing to do but just wait for the scheme to begin. Others not so fortunate. Linemen are busy laying cable and engineers putting up defences on the beaches. Friday 11th. Hot again and I went swimming to keep down my temperature. A shark was seen not far out from the shore. I was told one came right in last year and carried off a native. Another was chasing a boat and shot with a rifle. I looked this up and was disturbed to learn that sharks could muster a good 35 miles per hour while man had not yet reached the 4 miles per hour mark. As to this scheme, well, brigade signals went down to the beaches yesterday to get acquainted with their respective stations. Joe went to George Beach, Bunny and Ron went to Howe, and I to Jig. Each station had a party of linemen in a truck, a wireless van with an Indian driver and operator, a jeep and a motorcyclist. We cipher blokes sat in the front of the wireless vans, very comfortable. Everything was ready at Jig except for one line that still had to be laid. Line laying in the desert is fool's play. You just drive the truck and let out the line from the drum which is fixed in the bar at the back of the vehicle. Anyone can do it. Three steamers and a warship riding at the anchor. Also, several invasion barges. Some say Montgomery and McConnell are here. Captain Cousins gave us white armbands which all control staff will wear. We only take orders from the umpires who operate on and from the three beaches. The umpire's job is to follow the tide of the battle and keep a score of gains, losses and estimate casualties. The so-called invasion takes place at two in the morning. We wore battle order, topees and had blankets, water and some provisions. I also had squared paper and message pads. Jig Control Tent had a table, two forms and a telephone. The control staff numbered three British linemen, two drivers, a wireless operator, a motorcyclist and a couple of telephone and my surplus self of course. Fifty yards behind the tent a hospital station was set up. As we sat in the sand an officer came over to us. Control staff? he queried. 
Obviously, I thought, look at our armbands. Well, if any messages come for the ADS, he said, it's behind you in one of those tents. I couldn't see us needing to worry too much about that. I'm puzzled. They send four cipher operators a thousand miles to do nothing. Everyone asks about us as if we're key personnel, but the inquiry is always followed by the assurance and the hope we'll have nothing to do, which, at the moment, seems to be spat on. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Is it time to change your approach and switch to Air Supra, Albuterol Budesonide? Now you can virtually connect with a doctor to discuss your options and see if it's time to make a change. If appropriate, you may even be able to get a prescription for Air Supra the same day. Talk to a doctor today and see if Air Supra is right for you. Visit airsupraconnect.com to connect with a provider. Someone who's definitely managing to keep herself busy, though, is Via Hodgson, our social worker based in Notting Hill. Via is quite pragmatic about what's going on around her, but not everyone shared her views. In the Ministry of Information's Home Intelligence report this week, it was clear there'd been a good deal of talk about how long the war in Europe might need to last. People were guessing, of course, and most of their estimates ranged between a few months and about a year. But, according to a notable minority... If it's taken three weeks or a month to smash a small island like Pantelaria, it's going to take years and years to finish the job. Let's join Veer, catching up on that news through the newspapers and from radio broadcasts, coping with the somewhat lighter stresses and strains of war on the home front. Sunday, 6th of June. Mr Churchill is back and we are relieved. We began to be anxious when the airliner was attacked. The Germans definitely thought he might be on it. They've never attacked these planes before, but to lose Leslie Howard is grievous. I heard him on the Brains Trust, as well as seeing him in Pygmalion, Romeo and Juliet, and surely he was Ashley in Gone with the Wind. I am sure he cheered the others up in those awful moments before they fell into the sea, or at least comforted them. They must all have been killed instantly. 
The invasion of Italy sounds imminent. They say two desert generals are in London. They were seen at the Ritz, but nothing is said in the papers. De Gaulle and Girard are very funny, and their affairs in Africa read like an episode from the gondoliers. Apparently, they do everything in twos. They have to breathe simultaneously, and who goes first through a door? I do not know. Monday night, our fire watch, all roused at two a.m., pouring with rain, went to front door where old Chips was delighted to be let in. He thought the warning was for his benefit. I couldn't not see an inch. As soon as gunfire died down, I bravely walked down the drive. Mr. Bendel was at his porch, and we talked to let the road know we were on duty. Had a word with the porter at Lansdowne House and padded back in streaming rain. Soon all clear. Bombs at Dulwich and Thornton Heath. Several killed. So you never know. Went to the zoo to book tea for my next parties of mothers and children on June nineteenth. The cafe is open on Sunday, so I explained my plan of action. The old Polish man found me some aged radishes and lettuce, and with his compliments to the animals, he gave me extra. As we queued for the bus, we watched the uniforms. It does rather feel as though we are a stronghold of American soldiers. The yak snorted at me with disgust, but I discovered he was trying to tell me to throw the radishes into his open mouth, and suddenly I had rows upon rows of youngsters admiring my skills. Book the tea. Rather a good day in all. And finally this week, we'll check in with Mar Blythe as she's writing to her son David, stationed out in Canada. Here's Mar, cheerful as always, with news from the family home in Edinburgh. Eighth of June, dear David, thank you for your aircraft of twenty fourth of May. Joan received hers at the same time and thanks you. Glad the exams are going well. I'm looking forward to the results, good or bad. As you say, you had good experience in civil life, and I know you were determined to succeed. So I wish you all the luck. Uncle Sam was asking Dad how you were getting on, and said he had a letter from Aunt Jean telling about your visit. I'm sure she would just like to keep you there. Today we took Gran along with us. And after arriving at the general post office, we all walked along Princess Street to look in at the gardens. The gardeners were busy on the floral clock, which is gradually taking the form of a battleship. The open air dancing was also going well to the strains of a gramophone. In fact, it was a real change for Gran, as it's a long time since she was up town. Dad had a nice rest this weekend and did a little bit of the gardening, so you see everything is just as usual here. I'll only send aircrafts to you now, as you may be changing your address and they arrive quicker. All the family are well and send their regards to you. Hope Frank is doing all right in his exams too. It will be a happy day if you both pass. Love from Ma. P.S. Our green budgie is a rebel now and refuses to go to its cage at night, so I'm afraid to say we leave him out. A green budgie, eh? Well, that's one pair of wings in the family. We'll finish this week with young Flight Lieutenant David Blythe, 
who's now well on his way to earning his own set of wings. The exams are nearly over, and like the rest of his classmates at Port Alberta, David's looking forward to a few days' leave. Dear Ma, thank you very much for your recent correspondence. You've certainly given me a full description of the size of Joan's feet. You can rest assured I'll do what I can to get her a pair of ice skates in the right size. There have been some developments since I last wrote to you. There are 2,000 marks settled for general work on the course, and I have come fourth overall with 80.1%. There are still 1,000 marks to gain for personal assessment, and that will probably redistribute the positions. I'm quite sure I'll come down the list. I'm in the first seven at the moment, and we are being granted 14 days leave. The rest of the boys are being posted immediately to another part of Canada to start on another course. On returning from leave, we seven will be posted to the same part of Canada to start the same course. I've enjoyed getting the leave, but unfortunately Frank isn't in the first seven, and it means we'll be separated. But that's Air Force life, and there's nothing we can do about it. In any case, I'm sure to meet him again somewhere. Tomorrow is a great day for us all here. It's our wings parade. Whether I'll be getting a commission or not, I don't know, but that will come out in the wash. It's a long time since I started my training, and I'll be really proud of this little wing when I get it. It's difficult to explain how much it means to us all, but I know you understand. I meant to tell you, I also came top in aerial photography. I can see Paramount Pictures and Metro Goldman Mayer putting out a call for me now. Ma, I think that's all for now, except to say... Do keep on writing to this address. Your correspondence will be forwarded to me, of course. Wherever I am, I'll write continually. You understand, of course, that I won't be home for a few months yet, but I'm looking forward anxiously to the day when I knock on the old door again. Meanwhile, you may be sure I'm happy and healthy here, and looking forward to seeing you soon. Hope Gran and all the folks are on top of the world. Love to all, David. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.